0: Welcome to the God is not an asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition, and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your host, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self.
1: This is God is Not an Asshole. You won't see Carrie today. She'll be back next week. She's been in Portugal. and uh, But we, we have a mutual friend on today, uh, Doug Paget. Even though Carrie lives in New Jersey and I live in California, and Doug doesn't live in either one of those places, we are all connected. Uh, yeah, we share a heart, totally. really, in a lot of ways, right? Totally.
2: Yeah. I feel like I'm, I've come between the two of you cause I'm in Minneapolis. So right in between, uh, you know, as far as the country goes. And I think David, I was there when you and Carrie, Carrie met for the first time. I you were, you think we were in that space them. together.
1: You, you had me yeah. come in and, uh, guest teach your, your course, uh, when she was studying for her master's and, uh, yeah. she read my book because of you. And then mm-hmm. after that, sometime later I read hers. And so I put it up on Facebook. I said, I want to, is anybody out there open to co-hosting a podcast about uh, connecting people who have a background in fundamentalism and they have recovered or they are recovering? And, uh, you know, we want to hear those kinds of stories. And a few people said they'd want to do it, but the only female was Carrie, and, you know, I mean, it's not just that she's female because, you know, Carrie, you know, she's,
2: <laughs> you know, she's brilliant. Yeah. She's she's more than know. a woman to me, as Billy Joel would say. <laughs>
1: right, right. So w- w- we appreciate having having you as a part of this project, Doug. Uh, and really, in some ways, you can take some credit for its existence. Great. And so I would like for you to just take a moment to introduce yourself Tell us where you are, where you've been, and in particularly, how you found out that God's not an asshole.
2: Yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> uh, I live in Minneapolis area. Uh, that's where I am now. I live in a little 1st ring suburb called Edina, so right next to Minneapolis, if people know the area. I'm currently in my basement, uh, in a basement studio Uh the work that I do requires a lot of screen time and video creation and podcasting and live streaming. So I have a little setup down here because now I live in the house that I've lived in for 24 years with my wife. Now it's just us. We raised four children in this house. And so now we have this house that you literally used to have six people in it. Small family. It's just the two of us. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. Uh, Just the two of us. And, um, we still are like, well, we're, we're kind of cramped for space sometimes. Cause now I've taken over the entire basement, you know, that used to be shared by children and everything else. So, um, I'm, I'm in that, uh, that basement studio. Uh, I've spent my adult life, David, as you know, as a pastor and as a, uh, spiritual innovator, trying to create new kinds of communities and new ways of doing Christian spirituality in the United States. Um, at sort of a big national organizing level and individual personal spirituality and written a bunch of books on spirituality and church leadership. And, um, so I do a lot of organizing right now. My work is not in a local congregation as it had been for 20 years. I pastored a church that I started called Solomon's porch for 20 years and three years ago, I stopped that work. And, um, now I do, a, a I run a, a nonprofit group called vote common good. So we, we exist to try to help faith voters especially evangelicals and white catholics who are looking to separate their political identities from the religious identity if they felt those two had become intertwined in a way that wasn't useful to them anymore what that normally means for most people is trying to help them not vote for people like Donald Trump uh, any longer so and we that's caught you the, uh, at a moment the work uh, we do.
1: this is the the moment he uh, just got indicted do um, you have any thoughts about all of that?
2: Uh, boy, so many. I mean, I've thought about this for a long time. In fact, I was just today uh, going through some old Facebook posts because I was looking for an, a piece from, for Easter. I'm, I'm going to preach at a church uh, guest preacher on Easter. So I had a, it's been four years since I've done an Easter sermon. So I was pulling up some stuff, and I remember putting something uh, on Facebook a few years ago, and I was looking back through, and it was 2017. And like the post right around the one that I was looking for were things about saying uh, I think that the you know the prosecutor in Manhattan is really going to be able to do something with the criminality of Donald Trump? So I realized I've been not only thinking about that guy. Uh, my friend says you allowed Donald Trump to live rent free in your head, and that's that's probably true. Uh, but I've been thinking about that and the impact of criminal behavior on behalf of a president and someone before they were president, and then now while he was president and since he was president. So there's in- possible indictments coming and in all all three of those phases of the guy's life. Just a real outlaw practice um, of being president, it seems to me. So I think a lot about it, but I'm actually quite heart sunk about it all. I mean, I, there are times where I just, I shake my head and think, what in the world are we having to live through as a country? Like we should not have to do this. None of us should have to face a president or former president of the United States having to hold up a, you know, a, a, a number in a corrections division of the basement of any prosecutor's office while they have a mugshot taken. We shouldn't be having to have a conversation about, will they put him in handcuffs or not? Like all that, it's just, it's, it's not what public service should foist upon people. It's just not how it should go. I think it's the only possible way forward. I mean, I don't know what else we do. I believe his actions have been looked at by people who uh, have the authority and the responsibility and the care to, to ask these questions. And they've determined that he needs to be indicted. And, and there's likely more coming from all the indications. But on the other hand, like it shouldn't be this way. So I'm, I'm really just sort of torn about, okay, justice, because there's a thing about just do a lot of work in justice areas, you know, around issues of justice in our society. And we have to have a justice system, but we all know that the end of the justice system doesn't make things right, right? It tends to be a punishment system. It doesn't tend to be a a restitution system. It doesn't tend to be a, a reintegration narrative. It doesn't tend to restore. You know, um, you, you,
1: my my wife and I had this conversation yesterday. We, we were talking about, you know, the word penitence and penitentiary and how they are so unrelated, even though it's the same, you know, word root, uh, it's not about penitence. It's it's
2: it's about pu- it's a they, we should call them punitentiaries. <laughs> yes, in fact, I, I I don't know if you know, but I just stumbled on the other day because uh, the church that, we're, that I'm attending now they were talking about the act of penance. You know, as like a spiritual practice. Yeah, and it reminded me that that like the first uh, penitentiary in the United States is in Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, started by the Quakers. Okay. as places of penance. In fact, the cells, the the building is still there. They've since changed it. So, but in the, in the, uh, you know, 1700s, they innovated this place and the cells were created like monk cells. And the theory was that people would, and it was all solitary confinement, if you can imagine, because the idea was people would go in there and then have to sit in penance, and pray. And there were skylights in the, in the cells so they could pray up to God. Like, so literally our penance narrative and yeah. repentance narrative is what the penitentiaries were formed around in a very broken criminal system. And that was meant to be the alternative to the punitive systems. And the whole thing is just, it's just really wacky. You know, it's, um, <laughs> that sounds like a beautiful plan actually. Uh, you know, I don't know
1: how much you, you're have heard of or read of uh, Angela Davis, but she's big on uh, prison abolition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can understand that this system does not work. It does not contribute to the health no, right. of a
2: society. It's just, it's just no good. It's just not the way, we, we know it doesn't, doesn't treat people well. I, I heard somebody talking about these issues uh, say, we really need to figure out uh, how to make the distinction between the people we're mad at for bad behavior and the people we're afraid of, because mm. we do have to make sure that we can keep people safe. We can keep, you know, uh, perpetrators yeah. from perpetrating and victims from yeah. being victimized. That's one question. And then there's another thing where we just punish people, just believing somehow that punishment it causes, causes change. And I, I, I don't know, I guess it probably does sometimes for some people in some situations, but on mass, mass yeah. incarceration, mass punishment systems, they really don't work. Which kind of gets to our topic, actually, because I think there's a lot of people who believe that God is an asshole yeah. in the sense of like a, a prison warden or a yeah. uh, somebody who's going to dole out the punishment and they're then managing their lives in some sort of a sin management narrative to try to not violate some cosmic law um, so that, or moral law so that they don't ever feel the retribution and the punishment and the punishment of god and there's a lot of christianity that wants to perpetuate that story you know we're, I, we're approaching I, I, so
1: you're saying that it kind of flows out of a theological uh standpoint the
2: the, the idea uh yeah i don't think we would have our kind of penitentiaries in the western civilization or kind of punishment system overall if embedded in our system wasn't a deep sense that the God of the universe is going to send some people to eternal torment for some sort of evil, whatever, however you apply the evil, like it, it roots, it roots from that. Um, we do tend to treat people, I have this whole theory that, you know, Jesus admonition to love your neighbors. You love yourself and, you know, love your God, uh, and love your enemy and love everyone in the same, same way and breath and all. I don't think that's only an admonition. I think it's also a recognition of what we actually are doing. I think people do treat others, yeah, the way they think God treats them, and they're going to, and this comes out in these kinds so of conversations. God treats them I think,
1: like God's an asshole, so then they carry that forward. They pay it forward.
2: Yeah, uh, it, it. It's a little. It's a little. Uh, you know, it's a little harsh, but um, I think I think there's something deep inside where we believe that a punitive narrative of the divine is probably right somehow. So now like, you're remember, talking
1: about uh, the whole theology of the cross and the death
2: of Jesus. Well, well okay, we're coming up on Easter, and you know, <laughs> it, next week, a week from today, people are going to be standing in places on the day before, the Friday before Easter, referred to as Good Friday in the, you know, in the, in the church calendar and I guess in the civic calendar too. Yeah. And people having to explain, okay, okay so what what's happening now? Uh, God's going to punish God's own son because of something that humanity has done out of the love that God has for humanity. That, that little riddle it has not been solved by people very well. I don't think that's the story. I think we should stop telling that story. I think that's, that's a, a harmful story to try to figure out. Uh, it's an untrue story of the uh, to even match the text of Jewish faith or the burgeoning Christian faith of the early centuries. So, yeah, I think it's. I think it really is. I think it really is a, a problem. I think there's a much better story uh, embedded in all of that that uh, we could talk about if, if you want to. But that's. I do think that's that's rooted there, and we, we will import that story. That the divine wants to seek justice and retribution against people—any chance we we can sort of insert it in in our in our culture as a whole? I don't just mean any individual. It's it's just around, like man, it's just in the air, and it and it undergirds a lot of the assumptions that we make, and especially in our in our religion. And you, because if you believe that God God will do it to people, you know, at the ultimate level, yeah. Well, then what? What's going to prevent you? Let Let me run this by you. Um, a,
1: a few years ago, I don't know exactly, maybe five years ago or something like that. It was Good Friday, as you you brought that up, and I had um, I had intended, to, and I did eventually get there, intended to attend a local Good Friday service with several churches and you know church leaders participating, uh, making presentations and. It also happened to be the very Friday of the funeral of Stefan Clark, who had been shot uh, by um, uh, the Sacramento police department, uh, police officers and killed. And the funeral was there. And and, and since then I should point out that his, his family has received a a pretty hefty settlement uh, in a civil case, but the police officers, you know, got away with it, if you want to call it that, but the thing is, is that I'm, I'm watching, I'm streaming on, I'm, I'm, I'm streaming this funeral service and I'm thinking, I'm going to a Good Friday service, wow. but this is the Good Friday service. You know, I mean, it was so emotional and mm-hmm. uh, so raw and so real. And, and, and you think about it, Good Friday is about the rawness of death and execution mm-hmm by the state and, right. and so i i was just wondering if you know <laughs> you brought up good friday do you do you kind of connect with that at all
2: oh or? man totally yeah and if it wasn't for being introduced i don't know 20 30 years ago to the the book and the idea of the cross and the lynching tree to give me a different narrative around the death of jesus in a, in a theological and culturally appropriate way and for some people, just hearing that title, the cross and the lynching tree, and being like, oh, is the lynching tree a narrative by which we could think about the, the cross? Like, is that what crosses were used for as a Roman punishment tool, something similar to that? And, and if so, then, is there, then what is the equation of, of God? Fortunately, and I don't know how this happened, David, but I got into Christianity as a 16 year old. I was almost 17. Yeah, I and I didn't have you a I didn't have that. a Christian background, so I wasn't I didn't have a child's version of Christianity ever handed to me. A, a really great great gift. Um, unfortunately, my own children didn't benefit uh, from that same gift that I that I received because they were raised in a pastor's home. So there is some <laughs> big difference. mean irony of life. But I I never assumed God was my enemy. I I mm. I just assumed that. If God existed, which I thought was true, that God was the helper to people who were going to be harmed. That I mean, that mm. somehow I got God as love. And, and literally I'm like I didn't know anything about Christianity. That sounds I more organic that. though. Well, it sure seems that it, it sure <laughs> seemed that way to me. It's like, I I don't know if there's maybe it's because I was making up my own version of God, right? Like. And so if you're going to make up a God, like making well, we up the future, <laughs> yeah, then I mean, you might as well also- have it be a good version. <laughs> why, would you, why would you make it? Why aren't you, why, you know, I have a friend that's all into multi-universe stuff, you know, and like all full possibilities and all that stuff. He's like, look, if all, if all possibilities are an option, I'm just going to live in the better one. I would just assume like, why would I, why would I worry about stuff when I can just think it's going to work out? Wouldn't that just be better? Cause neither my worrying nor thinking it's going to work out is what's going to make it happen. So I might as well just take the, take the better way. And I like that philosophy. Um, but I didn't think that God was the enemy I, and when I heard the Christian story and saw it I saw it in a passion play so actually the Easter week is the formation of my own Christian story I was 17 16 years old just about wow. 17 went to a a Jesus people church in Minneapolis and the invitation of a friend with no knowledge of Christianity I didn't know that Christmas and Easter were related I'd never opened a bible I didn't know what John 3:16 was I'd seen it in on posters and football stadiums that was a thing back in the 70s and early 80s And so I didn't know anything, saw the story of Jesus on the side of humanity, Jesus saying that God's on the side of humanity, Jesus being crucified, Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. By the way, you don't get to read one of the seven words of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, the people crucifying me, because they don't know what they're doing, and somehow think, no, God was actually doing it. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, to me, it's right in there.
1: So really he's, he's uh, pointing to the fact that they are responsible for it, but somehow we get the idea that they're not responsible, God is.
2: That God is. <laughs> like that somehow they were doing God's, God's bidding. And I'm, I'm an anti-death penalty activist, so I try to stop the death penalty. And, and, and I know it's a problem when people think, but ultimately the forgiveness of my sin came because God performed the death penalty action mm. on his own son. Right. If you start thinking that, then you're yeah. kind of like, so maybe you know, us killing people for their own redemption or for our redemption is sort of a sort of a good thing. So well, when you were story, 16
1: or when you were 16 or 17, and and you were exposed to all of this, how did it impact you?
2: Well, I was like, well, that's good news. I, I'm I, I want to be in the Jesus narrative where God is on the side of those who are victimized and sin is the ability that we have to hurt ourselves and to hurt one another. And what God wants to do is to free us from that. So the freedom of sin is what we want because we are the ones who are harming each other and ourselves, and we can be freed from that self-harm and harm of others and harm of the planet. So, And then later, literally, David, it wasn't, wasn't 10 minutes after the end of that show. I went down for like now I know it's called an altar call. At the time, I didn't know. They're just like, hey, if you're into this story, come on down here. I'm like, yeah, I'm into this story. I go down and then they have us go in the back of the, like, the stage thing. There's a big stage performance, you know, passion play kind of thing. And they hand out these little booklets. I think it was like this booklet called Steps to Peace with God or something like that, or Four Spiritual Laws, one of these kinds of things. And in it, there's an entirely different narrative about what went on. You know, it's got this like God on one side of a canyon, human being on the other and little stick figures and then Jesus cross. And I truly, as, as honest as I can tell you, I remember looking at that and thinking to myself, why is God trapped on the far side of a canyon? <laughs> and then I was thinking, well, that's not the story Jesus was just talking about out there. And I was looking at these people like, did you all see that story? Because they were literally swapping the story that came from the gospels that we saw it on the stage for the story in their booklet Mm -hmm. and they were different. So immediately within minutes of being a convert to this Jesus story, I was like, okay, you people back here, you religious people, you're, you're not telling the truth. Like it felt like instantly I was at odds with the story that was being, that was being told. So I never, it was, it's always been very hard for me to ever hear somebody pitch God as the enemy. Like in my view and the one I've always held is that, that, we're saved by God. We're not saved from God. Hmm. I mean, for mean, the love, what do we think we're doing here? And and I don't, I, I get it. Really good people, people I love and love me. Yeah. They stand up, you know, every day and talking to microphones like this and other things and say, say the opposite. So I know, you know, it doesn't, Make somebody totally horrible, or I'm not getting at that at all. But it's a really broken story, and the whiz bang math you have to do to try to make sense out of all that is just yeah. way too complicated. Nothing, nothing should be that that you know. Sophisticated basically, of an we
1: we believe things like that because someone tells tells us that, and and they're in a position of authority, and other people are listening, and and we get swept away. But I'm really glad you brought up about your experience as a as a teenager because um we hosted you 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 preached at our church uh, about 2 years ago mm-hmm. and we always open the floor at the end and someone asked you a question someone who had had um and had been around people with the similar experience of of having a hard time coming out of this fundamentalism and uh he asked you i remember who it was and and and, and he asked you uh, was it hard for you to recover from all of that? And your response was, well, I didn't even come into it till I was, you know, 16. And I didn't have a family. I didn't have parents and everybody around me with expectations of a certain kind of belief system or behavior. And so it wasn't as hard for you. And I mean, I had light bulbs going off when, when you said that because I started thinking, that's it. People are so enculturated and their families are holding on to them. And they feel like they're going to be shunned or, you know, looked down upon by their own, the most important people in
2: their lives. I, totally.
1: I, you know? And so, yeah, I, I was, I'm glad you went to that.
2: Yeah. I, I used to say like, look, I, for me to reject that way of thinking, I never had to like insult my grandmother, yeah. you know, who loves. <laughs> was like, I wasn't in opposition to the people who loved me and cared for me. So, um, it, it and it was really freeing, and I think you're right um, that there's just so many root assumptions that we hear as children that are very hard to let go of. Psychologists know this; like we all know yeah. it. There's something about early formed narratives, and they're 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 hard to shake. Yeah. And then we spend a lot of time reinforcing them. Um, I, I I tend to think that uh, people people believe that they're not enculturated by just stories they think they're being faithful to their religion and if you're christian then that probably means the bible somewhere in there that you're being faithful to the bible so i have thought and tried and have worked for decades to try to help people see those things you like that that you believe those do not come from the bible those Mm. have been um taken bible passages and stuff and and can you give us
1: an example of
2: of something yeah, like well, well, like the one where Jesus says, "Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing." Everyone knows that line. It's one of the it's yeah. one of the favorite it's one of the favorite pull quotes, you know. And there it is, right there. Like it, it's not like Jesus says uh, uh, to the people, "People for, um, forgive God for right, <laughs> yeah, for, for that it's on it's on on God's hands." So instead, they take a passage, you know, like um, if this weren't for my father's will, this wouldn't be happening, and then they just infuse that with a whole bunch of whole bunch of content or um they take a whole notion of of sin being the thing we do to one another and they replace it for sin that somehow is something that god want uh, that's a problem for god or our sin yeah sin whatever that is however you define it whether it's a moral violation or human by viol- whatever it it's not a problem for god yeah. i mean god it's not like god's some I mean I, I don't think the Bible gives you a, a vision of a pristine god that's just you know is is real precious and doesn't want to hear bad bad words and you sort of insulted like god's not precious and 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 not fragile and and all the rest of this so so we misinterpret holy like there's just a lot of things that 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 are there and look sometimes the bible's not always helpful on this because the bible's complicated and there's yeah. the bible is a collection of books and writings over time of competing ideas so you have some ideas in in parts of the bible that are held up to be compared to other ideas and the other ideas are going to win like a whole sacrifice narrative right you have this whole sacrifice narrative in the jewish text until you get to the prophets who then say look yeah god the lord has never been for sacrifice what does the lord require of you not sacrifices (laughs) but what to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And how many more animals are you going to kill? How many more sacrifices are we going to have? Because it's ridiculous. Like the prophets just go on and on saying to the religious system, you've got this whole thing turned around. And it's almost as if we take the cautionary tales or the corrected beliefs, the beliefs that are there to be corrected, and we act like those are the, those are the, those are the ones. It'd be like Jesus is tempted in the desert, and people are like, "We got to figure out how to take that deal." You know, if you could get yeah. the whole world and sort of control all of it, how would you? How, how could we rework that? Right? Those are those are warning narratives, not so what's not your how to plans. What What's your
1: um, reflexive emotion when you're having a conversation with somebody, and they say and these three words? Right? They say. Well, you know, the Bible says,
2: yeah, (laughs) Uh, I I, honestly, and David, this is, this is just just confessional here. So don't, don't, you know, don't let everybody else hear this. Um, I get smug because I'm like, I don't know what you're about to say, but I think I know the Bible pretty well. (laughs) So, so let me add And what you're probably going to bring out right now is not a deep cut. You're probably going to give me one of the, uh, you know, one of the, one of the top tens out of the Bible about what the Bible says. And I'm pretty sure the Bible doesn't say what you're about to yeah. say it says. Yeah. Like, can I give you an example that's not from the Bible? Yeah, I was just in this conversation please. with a friend yeah. about, well, we were arguing uh, after you know a, another murder that involved uh, children at an elementary school, this one in Nashville. And one felt particularly close to me because I'm good friends with a pastor at the church where one of the, little girls, little Eleanor uh, attended the church and was part of that church and she was murdered. And, um, so I'll, I'll give you an example that comes from another conversation I was having with a friend around the shootings that happened in uh, Nashville. Nashville. He was talking about the second amendment. And he said, and I said, why do you think the second amendment says that you have the right to own guns? And he says, it's right there. Just read it, man. This isn't a text. Just read it, man. And I'm like, I sent, copied that text and sent it to him. I said, see, it doesn't say that. It says you have the right to bear arms, but it doesn't say guns. Now you can interpret that what they meant was guns, but it may have also meant, I don't know, knives or shields or swords or spears or something, right? There's an interpretive act, but in his mind, he had already replaced the word arms with the word guns. So it's not just the Bible where we do this. We just tend to do this this kind of this thing, right? We do it over and over, and especially with the Bible. Yeah. And man, I'll tell you, one of the things that I've spent a lot of time thinking about is how do we decide which passages in the Bible were meant mm-hmm. only for that moment, for those people in that setting, and which are intended for all people? Yeah. Because that's a major that's a really major question right so like 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 this passage uh uh uh, that jesus says to one guy one particular person you must be born again right right i know a lot of people who take that passage and think that applies to humanity
1: yeah if someone asks me have you take all
2: of your yeah if
1: someone asks me you know have you been born again um my response might be um Have you sold all your goods and given them to the poor? Because Jesus told
2: one guy. (laughs) One guy for one guy. Yeah. Yeah, like nobody says, hey, Jesus said to his disciples, we're supposed to go into Jerusalem and find the room and prepare a place for him to have the Passover. No one I know reads that in the Gospel of Luke, gets on an airplane and flies to Jerusalem. Yeah. Right? Because there'd be nonsense, we know. But then you get into the one thing he says to Nicodemus versus the one thing that he says to the religious leader. How does that apply? When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, I tend to universalize that. Yeah. I don't think he was only speaking to his disciples. I yeah. want to suggest he was saying that to all of humanity. So I say to everybody, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth.
1: Yeah.
2: Everyone, without exception. So I universalize that you, other people... Localize that you, right? They mean they they think it only means to those certain people and not actually to everyone. So, this is a real project that we find ourselves endeavoring on. What I do know is that whatever the writers were writing in Second Chronicles about if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and will pray, then I will heal their land, that doesn't apply to the United States of America. That statement was not being said to yeah. the United States. Yeah. Maybe it was being said to some churches, or maybe it's being said to a people group, or maybe it. But this is a real thing that, like, we just have to determine what's specific and what's general, because none of our names are on the recipient, you know, side of any statement in the Bible. So we're doing a thing, and if we could just acknowledge that, I think it gets us a long, long way into you know probably a better you know, what the fancy kids in the seminaries call a better hermeneutic to so, really think about who's who, who's we and who's talking about what to whom.
0: Thank you so much for being here today. We are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell and we want to know about it. Please contact us on Twitter at GodIsNotAnAsshole or text 805-703-8393 because the world needs to know that God is not an asshole.